Welcome to the show. You're listening to the Hope Radio Podcast. Real stories, real people, real hope. My name is Sean Davis. I happen to be your humble host. And joining me as always, my co-host in life, my beautiful wife, her name is is just Jen. And you are along with us as we keep the hope train a moving on down the tracks. Choo-choo! We are hawkers of hope, Jen. We are originators of optimism. We are purveyors of positivity. We are engineers of encouragement. You add it all together and it spells... Hope. Yes, it does. <laughs> I love that. How you doing today? I am great. I'm doing so great. Oh, so great. I'm doing great. Yay! <laughs> is that how it goes? No. How's it go? I already did it once. Oh, I'm just trying to remember. I'm trying to be your cheerleader for you. <laughs> yeah, it's doing great. I'm doing so great. I like it. It didn't sound great. You need pom-poms. I need pom-poms? Uh-huh. You want me to get pom-poms? Yeah, and then I'll believe you. Pom-poms with sparkles and glitter and all the fun yeah. stuff? Yeah. I have pom-poms, but. I remember seeing you at the very first game back in high school, and you mm -hmm. were this cheerleader. You had your pom-poms. They were white and green, and I went, oh. <gasps> I like, like her pom-poms. I like her pom-poms. <laughs> Look at that little young miss right there. I think, I think I'm going to go talk to her. <laughs> Never did I ever, 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 ever know what kind of trouble I was going to get into going yeah, to talk to you. Big trouble. I know. Here we are 31 years later. What? <laughs> what? Yeah, people may not know. We're, you know, high school sweethearts. Yeah. Been together since I was 15. I know. Went on our first date about two weeks before I graduated. Mm-hmm. And then uh, dated, yeah. you know, been together ever since. Crazy. What do you think about that? I think it's awesome. 31 think, years. Yeah, I think it's rare. So It is rare. Yeah. We don't have any tattoos and we've been together since high school. That's rare. <laughs> we're rare. We are rare. The rare breed. <laughs> Definitely that. That's for sure. Well, let's get into some funny time. I want to tell some jokes. I want to laugh. Okay. You ready? I'm ready for my joke. Are you I'll, ready for your joke? I will soon be ready for my okay. joke. I'll tell mine then. Okay. Why don't eggs tell jokes? Why don't eggs tell jokes? I don't know. It's either going to have something to do with the shell or something to do with the yolk. They're not, I don't know. What is it? They'd crack each other up. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, they can't tell jokes. I like that. <laughs> that was a good one. You did good on that one. I do I'll, good on all of them. I'll, I'll give you that one. You ready I for do mine? good on all of them. Okay, you do good on all of them. <laughs> I just wanted to hear you say that. I know. I just said it. I'll say it one more time. You do great. Jen, you do so good. You do so good on your jokes. <laughs> Thank You're you. You're the best. Oh, my Thank God. Thank you so much. <laughs> all right. You ready for mine? Yes. All right. Here we go. So this one's a husband and wife joke, and I'm sure you may be able to relate so as i tell it there's gonna be a husband part and a wife part all right okay so here's the husband oh the weather is lovely today shall we go out for a quick jog he says to the wife mm -hmm. the wife says ha, 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 i love the way you pronounce shall we go out and have cake <laughs> she can't hear anymore no she didn't want to hear jog oh. she's laughing at all oh, so funny. Shall we go out and have cake? He's all, shall we go out and have a quick jog? She's all, you're so funny. I love the way you pronounce, shall we go out and have a cake? That'd be you, right? That would be me. Yeah. Be, let's go have some cake. Let's jog and eat cake. That would be me. What kind of cake? Um, I love vanilla cake with vanilla frosting. I'm so boring. I just like the simple. I love the flavor of vanilla. As a kid, mm -hmm. I was all about chocolate cake. Chocolate mm -hmm. cake, chocolate frosting. Yeah. Guess what my new fave is? What? Carrot cake. Can you believe it? Yeah. I love carrot cake. I do like carrot cake. A really good carrot cake? Oh, to die for. You know what? I don't think there's a cake I don't like. Really? really? Yeah. Like, I'll eat all cakes. I just really prefer, like, a white cupcake or a white cake, and I just like the white frosting. It's just very simple. Good to know. Yeah. Good to know. I'm going to buy you cake. Okay. I could bake a cake. <laughs> All right. Well, I've got an interview for you today. We're going to be talking about now. I, I know you sometimes 
get a little shy, mm-hmm. get shy. a little introverted, mm-hmm. get a little, you know, I don't want to say nothing when we yes. get into the heavy, heavy subjects. All right. I'm, I'm listening and taking notes. I know you are. I know you are. And I appreciate the fact mm-hmm. that you are because I've got to, I've got to ask the questions. You got to take the notes. Okay. But we're going to have an interview today yes. with Linda Pasha and she has an incredible story. It's a, to me, it's a heartbreaking story. Mm-hmm. She's taking something that was horrendous, a parent's worst nightmare. She lost her son to suicide, and she's turned that into a mission to make people aware of the warning signs, Mm -hmm. to make people aware of the habits and or actions that sometimes people can take if they are suicidal. She's written a book. She's got a website. She's advocated, and... um, and she she just would like to make sure that this doesn't happen to somebody else's yeah. child and it doesn't happen to somebody else. And so she's just uh, she's going to tell us about her son, Nick, mm-hmm. and we're going to discuss Nick's Network of Hope, which is the organization that she founded in his honor. And um, yeah, so it's going to be it's going to be a heavy subject, but I think right. a really, really good show because we want to make sure that uh, nobody else if we can ends up in the same type of position that she was in and nobody else ends up like nick okay yeah. so you ready i'm ready let's call her up and get her on the line here we go all right i've got linda pasha on the line linda welcome to hope radio podcast how are you today Good, Sean. Hi, Jen. How are you? Nice to virtually meet you. Nice to virtually meet (laughs) you as well. That's what we got to do in the age of the pandemic is we got to do virtual meetings now (laughs) and everything's Zoom and Skype and, you know, virtual stuff. But uh, pleasure to make your acquaintance and glad to have you on the show. We're excited to to talk with you. And for the benefit of our listeners, just tell us a little bit about uh, yourself. Where do you live? Where do you call home? Uh, I live in Naperville, Illinois, which is a suburb just outside of Chicago. Just I've a- grown up here my whole life. Well, I love that. I've I've never been to Naperville, and I've been to Chicago once. I went up on, oh, you know, what's that? Is it Sears Tower? Is that the one that has the crazy thing that you step on the glass and you can look down and it feels like? Is that? Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh! That yeah, that's it's one always of the- a, it's always a Sears Tower to me. Yeah, they renamed <laughs> it, but yes, Sears Tower. Yeah, whatever incarnation it is now, if they've renamed it. But I, I just remember, like, that is so scary. I mean, I get the heebie-jeebies looking down through something like that. That's incredible. <laughs> Me too. Me too. Well, I, I know that uh, we want to talk about your story and your son's story, Nick, and Nick's network of hope. So I'm going to let you unpack that for the benefit of our of our audience. But yes, today's show is about suicide. It's about suicide awareness. It's about suicide advocacy in terms of, you know, making sure that people understand there are resources and, and tools out there available to help people that are in that situation. But why don't you go ahead and start us off with uh, where this story of your life began? Okay, so um, we lost our son, Nick, to, to suicide in 2013. He was 19 years old and a freshman at the University of Minnesota. We almost got him home. It was just two weeks short of the end of his freshman year. It, it, you know, Nick was such, such a great kid. I guess the best way to tell his story is to go back to his childhood because I think there are a lot of commonalities with what Nick was going through um, and many, many other kids that, that, you know, go through the same thing. So I will tell you that when he was young, he had intense passions. First, it was for cars and trucks, then it was for buildings, and then it was for claims. Um, Nick was just the sweetest little soul. He was um, wonderfully quirky. We had to get his IQ tested in, a, in a kindergarten year on the recommendation of his kindergarten teacher because he was asking all kinds of questions that we couldn't answer. And this was before Google. So you can imagine and you, uh, my husband, Tom, and I were uh, <laughs> we were we were always just trying to to fulfill his needs. So he he, he tested in a gifted range um, and he was perfectly content to play alone by himself because he had a big imagination and he liked books. So when he was very young, that's what he did. He didn't have a best friend. Well, actually his best friend, I would say, was his sister. And there were a few girls across the street that he played with. All the parents thought he was adorable because he looked like this little Harry Potter. Um, <laughs> and he memorized all kinds of facts. And, and uh, um, you know, he would just threw out all kinds of facts about any airplane that, you know, went overhead and all that. But the other kids, Sean, they just couldn't relate 
to his interest or his level of passion for those interests. And so what would happen um, in childhood was that uh, when it came to play dates, Nick wasn't really asked to be in those play dates. Kids were going to each other's homes. Nick was not included. And so the kids were bonding and learning how to socialize, playing sports together and making memories. And Nick was kind of an outsider. Now, my husband and I, you know, we, we tried to assimilate him. We um, had him in park district classes from early on. Um, we had him in t-ball and, and coach pitch. But, you know, Nick was the kid out in the field that was looking up in the sky for playing. Now, were you, um, were at you, some point, let me, let me just ask you a question okay. there, just in terms of, of awareness. Were you and your husband aware that he was maybe struggling in that department at the time? Or is this some of the work that you've done since his suicide, reflecting back over your life and trying to put the pieces together? A little of both. Uh, we, we knew that he liked to be alone. You know, he was our firstborn. So um, our daughter was definitely more social. And we, we, we tried to assimilate him, but we didn't want to push him out of his comfort zone either. Yeah. You know, we had him in basketball and soccer, and it's just such a hard balance because you want to keep on introducing different things to them, like sports and activities and, and different groups of kids. But if they're feeling, you know, shut down, they, they feel like they, you know, like, I'm not good enough in sports because, you know, let's face it, some kids are more socially inclined than others. Um, and so like, you know, for example, whatever's after coach pitch, I, I'm um, so not sport minded, but when it, I think it was like that, you know, fast pitch, it got to a point where it would have been dangerous to keep Nick in there. You know, we yeah. had him in Boy Scouts and he wanted to quit. Well, later on, years later, years and years later, we found out the reason why is because he was going to Boy Scouts with um, one of his biggest bullies. Of course, he wouldn't tell us that at the time. He just said he wanted to quit, which, you know, my husband, and I couldn't figure out why, because he finally got in, we thought, with a group of nice kids. But, you know, nobody would want to go if they're facing their bully each, each and every time. And that's, um, you know, and so what and that's, happened, that's just as I was just going to say, that's just a sad commentary on on schoolyard uh, behavior, I think, you know, it's the people that are sweet, that are, that are somewhat timid and maybe slightly socially awkward are the, are the easiest targets for bullies. They're the ones that get the most venom from people that, you know, feel insecure themselves. So they're going to be the big brash bully kind of a situation. And that just nothing, nothing bothers me more than to, to hear those types of stories because, you know, I, I think that's a theme. Anytime you get really gifted, very smart individual kids, like, like introspective and, and, mm-hmm. and gifted in terms of their intelligence, sometimes they manifest in socially awkward behavior. Right. So they have a difficult time trying to fit in or connect. And I think that's what you're sharing. Right, exactly. And they get labeled as being outsiders. And, and like you said, Sean, that those are the kids that, you know, typically are the ones that are the weakest link in the social group. So they're the ones that get picked on. And so, you know, uh, there are so many kids like this um, that feel different from the group, whether it be from physical disability or a learning disability, or they look different than the rest of the kids. Or sexuality. Or going through something sexuality, and all kinds of reasons, right? So what happens with these kids then is that maybe in the beginning, like Nick, they don't care if they're part of the bigger group. But at some point, I think that most of them do want to be part of it. And because they're excluded over and over and over, those exclusions become not just exclusions of, I didn't go to Billy's house on Tuesday, I wasn't invited to go to Billy's house on Tuesday, but those kids that went to Billy's house, because I wasn't invited, they rejected me, my whole personhood. They, so the exclusions become rejection to these kids and the rejection upon rejection upon rejection stack up. And what happens underneath is that it causes so much pain and um, just just unbelievable pain that it, it is a mortal wound in the making. It could be a mortal wound, meaning it could lead to suicide. And so for Nick, he this was something that he experienced in grade school. 
Then in middle school, it was much of the same. The bullying continued. And then in high school, he was very excited to start. He thought it was a fresh beginning, but he found that it was much of the same thing. And then on top of that, what happened was around junior year, he started questioning his sexuality. Um, Nick, he didn't know if he was gay or he was straight. And in hindsight, because he kept on flip-flopping and we were cool with whatever it was going to be, you know, we're like, Nick, we just love you. We want you to be happy. But for Nick, this was an internal struggle. Now, was he he sharing with you that was at the time, was he sharing this? He was outward with the struggle that he was going through or did you guys just pick up on it? No, he came to, he came to us right away. We're a real open family and we discuss everything. And so he came to us right away and we supported him. And like I said, I think in hindsight, well, actually he even said it, it this was something that he was questioning. He was trying to figure out if he was gay or gay or straight. And then he sort of figured out, you know, over a few, you know, a year or so later that he was probably asexual because he didn't, he didn't have feelings sexual feelings for females or males. And that's what was um, so difficult for him is because he, he, you know, there's not a lot of talk on TV or in the movies about asexuality. Um, And so um, he just didn't understand it. Why, why didn't he have those feelings? He saw kids dating and going dances and, and he went on, you know, to dances with girls and stuff at school but he didn't have those feelings for, for, you know, young women or, you know, young girls at the time. So um, it was very confusing for him. Now, now that's not anything he shared at school, but the kids picked up on it. I think that he was struggling. And then, you know, in high school, it was just awful. He was in band one day and two girls yelled across the band. Hey, Nick, are you gay? And Nick said no. And then they, they yelled, well, we find that hard to believe. And they started laughing. And then some of the other band kids started laughing. Oh, you know, Sean and Jen, it was just awful for Nick. When he came home, he was just in tears. Um, yeah, uh, one day he was uh, um, he was tripping back and forth on the football field with a kid, you know, like boys do, ribbing each other. And the kid turned to Nick and said, why don't you go kill yourself? Oh, my now, gosh. You know, is that awful? Isn't that awful? Um, now, Jen, Jen, Jen I, is just sitting there going, I cannot believe yeah. that somebody would say that. I mean, Jen has got a huge heart for others and specifically kids, and she's the super protective mom of our boys. She cannot let anything out. So to just hear somebody say that, I, I just can't believe that people can let words like that come out of their mouth. I know. Yeah. I mean, kids are mean. And this is the thing. It, it, oh, Jen, it's this, the story is so, so sad. That's why I had to write a book about it because I had to share everything that my son went through Mm -hmm. and then try to help people from, from the knowledge that I gained. Um, but so anyhow, um, you know, I wonder if Nick was, if he was actually suicidal at the time, what would it have possibly, you know, felt like to have one of your own peers tell you to go ahead and do it? And, and I've since learned that this is something that kids say to each other. This is, this just wasn't one thing, one time kids say this to one another. And, and so we have to teach kids that they can't, you know, words have meaning. You can't say stuff oh, like that. You just keyed in on um, something. I, I feel like, you know, we, when we talk about God and, and God called us to do this hope radio podcast. And I really felt like it was, it was his prompting to do this and he gave me that whisper that inkling you know 10 years ago well I've got something else brewing inside of me and it's and it's uh it'll eventually become either a presentation I hope maybe a TED talk maybe it becomes a book or a speaking thing but it's about the power of words about how important words are how they do have power they have meaning they have weight they have gravity and and you know I know what you're saying I've been aware that kids say that to themselves I I think there was a pretty high profile case of of recently where a teen was prosecuted a girl was prosecuted for actually advocating that her boyfriend do yes. that like yeah. you know and so I was just yes. and I was horrified you know thinking yeah. about that and and it sits back and and for Jen and I with four boys of our own I sit back there and go what kind of parents you know like raised kids that that yeah. kind of stuff but then and you go okay, okay I got to give them grace you know what what's going on on their side what what are they dealing with mm-hmm. what how were they raised you know etc but it's just yeah. it's just heartbreaking that kids would say that to each other yeah. 
you know, or encourage that to even even think that how horrible and devastating that would be if actually that did come true. Like, Mm -hmm. how would you feel if they actually took your words and did it? You know. And, and, you know, uh, when I was writing my book, I changed descriptions of people. I changed different things so to protect, especially to protect the kids, because some kids are mean um, like that, like, like the young woman that you're talking about who got prosecuted. But mm-hmm. some kids are turn out to be good, good human beings, but they just say stupid things. They're not they're not thinking. They're not aware. Yeah. And, and it's up to us to make them aware to teach them from a young age that you could be saying something that you in your mind think is just a diss or one insult, but you've got to take, we've got to teach kids that, you know, you take the person um, and you don't know the history, uh, you know, what they've gone through in the past. So um, what you're saying may not be taken at face value it might be causing so much more pain and burrowing into, remember I was saying about that pain, that festering underneath all those rejections. Well, that's like just putting salt in that wound. And so that's what we have to teach kids is that, you know, we have to understand that people all and kids have histories and explain why certain things can hurt people and just, you know, be devastating to their core. Yeah, it can destroy them, um, literally. And, and I mean, it, it can, yeah, words words can do matter, and, and they do have power. They they have intrinsic power. And so so at this at the time that this was going on, when Nick would come home and, and he'd be upset and visibly upset, did you have any inkling at all that he might be suicidal, that he would be contemplating anything like that? Or was it just you coming alongside him, just trying to do your best to encourage him and lift him up, et cetera? The only sign that we had, because he never said it out loud, but the only sign that we had was that that same year, that junior year, when he was starting to question and getting bullied about that, um, he gave away some clothes in his closet. And and not your normal, hey, you know, I've outgrown this stuff. I mean, I opened the door to hang up some shirts, and I was blown away at how much was missing, as well as some knickknacks around the room and all that. Um, so we approached Nick right away, my husband and I, and we asked him, we said, Hey, Nick, what's, what's going on here? And, um, if you would know Nick, um, you would understand that he, my husband and I say to this day, he was the kindest person that we've ever met in our entire life. He would give the shirt off of his back to somebody. So when we asked him, he said, Oh, mom, dad, you know, I have so much and there are people out there in the world that need the stuff more than I. It makes me, it makes me feel good to give it, uh, to give away um, my stuff to others. And so, um, you know, that's an awesome answer, by the way. I mean, that's that's an answer that I would buy into. That's an answer that I would believe, and that's an answer that it would actually make me feel. Oh my gosh, this kid is just incredible. Like that's awesome that he's thinking of that. You know, so I I, I could see how that would be something that you could uh, easily, you know, gravitate to and, and dismiss with his, ex, you know, explanation. We thought that was a really good explanation, too. We were proud of him. And, you know, like we had always been, he was just, you know, a great kid as my, as my daughter is. I knew that that was a red flag for suicide or it could be a red flag for suicide. Uh, I went to, to law school, um, but before I went to law school, I worked on a master's in clinical psychology and my undergraduate degrees in psychology. So I knew, I didn't know the risk factors and warning signs. And that is one of my big things I want to say today is that everybody needs to be familiar with the risk factors and warning signs because this can happen in any family. But I did know that one. Um, And so um, we decided because Nick Nick was uh, was a junior in college and he was going to be going away the following year. Uh, I'm sorry, he was a junior in high school at the time, and he was going to be going to college, um, you know, after graduation, senior year, we knew we had to bring him right away to a psychologist um, to get an assessment um, because this was too big, you know, missing clothes, giving away things that that's just too big of a sign. 
So we did that. We took them to two psychologists, one for a first opinion and then, of course, for a second opinion. Both of them said, we don't think that he's suicidal at all. Um, the one psychologist was the same one that did, that did his IQ test in kindergarten. So we knew Nick and he was like, oh, you've got such a nice kid. And, um, um, and, and he didn't think he, you know, anything else other than he's fine, he's not suicidal. But the second psychologist said all the same things, but said, you know what? I think, you know, I don't think he's suicidal, but I think he's the highest functioning Asperger's kid. At the time it was Asperger's. Now we know that Asperger's is not a, a separate diagnosis in and of itself. It's now considered to be on the autism spectrum. So, so Nick um, was the highest functioning, but for purposes, um, because it was back then, I'll just say Asperger's, um, he was the highest functioning Asperger's kid he had ever seen. Um, and so um, um, we encouraged Nick to continue to, to go to the psychologist. Um, and just, we wanted him to go all the way up until he went to college. And, and you know, the, the psychologist said, yeah, no, he's fine to go to college. Everything's fine. Now, Nick didn't want to go. He didn't think he had a problem. He was like, mom, dad, no big deal. Everything is okay. I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. And so, um, what he did, he was clever. And now you have to understand, this is a kid who never lied to us ever. He was the nicest kid, he, he came home one day and he figured out one thing that would make us still be on board with him, but, but be okay with him not going back to the psychologist. He came home one day and said, I think the psychologist was hitting on me during a session. So, I mean, come on, how clever is that, right? Oh we, my gosh. What are you going to do as parents? Send him back behind a closed door to the psych. I mean, you're not going to do that, right? No. You'd, be, you'd be, you're not going to do that. So, you know, my husband and I were scratching our heads, like, okay, what do we do now, right? So we said, okay, pick and we'll, we'll, you can go to any other psychologist. You pick whatever one you want, or we'll pick one for you. But it was like pulling teeth. He didn't want to go, mom, dad, I'm fine. You heard them. They said I'm not suicidal. I'm okay to go to school. His grades weren't dropping. So we, we stopped. Um, and that is another point that I wanted to make, that with these, especially with these high-functioning kids, whether it be Asperger's, bipolar disorder, whatever it is, a lot of these kids, they can sort of figure out what the questions are that a psychologist is going to ask them. And they, they, it's hard. If, if they don't want to go, it's really tough to, to make a person go to get treatment or to, or to seek help. So, you know, that is just something that we have to talk about and say that another reason why we must know the risk factors and warning signs for suicide. Absolutely. And to know all the different resources that are out there. Now, for him, now, he, um, he he didn't he didn't go. He just he found out a way to explain away, you know, going back to the psychologist was resistant, resistant, and that was his junior year in you said high school, right? And school. so, did his senior right. year did it get better? You know, because he you said he went off to college, and so you know what happened between junior year and his college years. You know, he um, still had social um, social problems, you know, as far as not having a best friend like he wanted. Um, he did, um, gosh, there's so, so much to the story that he finally made it on a sports team. He was in track. And then there was a physical health problem that that we thought he had. You know how the athletes go when they get the EKGs? Um, yes. you know, all athletes do that for schools. It came up having a problem. Long story short, they thought he had a sudden death um, heart problem. So they pulled him out of, of, um, the uh, being on the track team, which he really liked. And it was, he was only on for two weeks. Oh um, gosh. and we thought, Oh gosh, this was going to be so wonderful. He can get in with a good group of kids. Well, all of a sudden we had to pull him from that. He had to go through all kinds of testing. He had a, uh, an ablation procedure. All he had, he had extra cells on his heart that caused fluttering. It wasn't a health um, issue it was not sudden death. It was a long diagnosis. 
it's, it's, it was like the perfect storm. All these things were happening for the poor kid. And so by the end of high school, he was really looking forward to go to college. He was looking back after his four years in high school. And I think, you know, how many of us do as we go to a new chapter in life, we kind of look back and assess. I think he was sad that he never had the one thing he wanted most, most in life. And that was a best friend. He just, I think he did have friends. I will acknowledge he did have friends, but I don't know because of all the pain from all the rejections, all of his life and the bullying and all the, you know, the whole trying to figure out if he was gay or straight, all that. I don't know how much Nick was able to feel by that point that he had those friendships. I certainly don't think he knew how much people cared. He knew his immediate family, Tom, my husband, Tom, uh, myself, and my daughter, Kelly. He knew the three of us really, uh, he could feel that love. But as far as um, friendships, I don't know how much he was actually able to really feel. And do you think that he... And I think that's what's common. Yeah. I was just going to say, do you think, you know, like... So grade school, he goes into high school, he thinks it's going to be a clean slate. He thinks he's going to have, okay, this is this is going to be the opportunity. You know, I'm going to find somebody now that, and I could see that. I mean, nobody wants to navigate this world alone. Jen, Jen is my best friend, you know. So the reality of it is, is I understand how important yeah. that is. I'm just wondering if he thought, okay, now that he's going to go off to college, you know, now I've got a clean slate again. Now, mm-hmm. now maybe I can find somebody that I can connect with, somebody that I can call a best friend, somebody that I can hang out with. Uh, do you think he had that kind of a mindset going into college? Do you think, or do you think he was already kind of locked oh, in yeah. that despair mindset, you know, already in high school and no matter what happened in college, it wasn't going to matter kind of a thing? No, no. I have a picture that we took, you know, where we're loading up the car. He has all his teenage possessions in there and he's got a big smile on his face. He, this was, I think, like the last shot in his mind of, you know, it could work out. I can meet my friends. I can meet people who are like me. I definitely think if everything would have worked out in college, I, I think he would have had a fighting chance. He would still be here. Yeah. I do. Yeah. Um, there might've been uh, a, a mental health issue that was growing. You know, a lot of these mental health issues start coming out at the, around the age of 19. That was, I've learned that since, Nick died and that and that was the age that he took his life so there might have been um, a, an underlying mental health problem but he was never diagnosed with it so we will we'll never know for sure sure but uh, yeah I do think Sean that when he started college he had hope he definitely yeah. had a lot of hope um and, and then maybe what maybe is what yeah, I was just going to say if it, if it was this if it was just a continuation of what he had already felt all of his life that that would be it very was. difficult to maintain hope if you if it, oh my gosh he gets there and then it's now still the same feeling no matter where I go the same thing happens no matter where I go yeah. I can't find anybody that's like me no matter where I go you know it's like you know here, I agree with you I think the the college was probably that that okay I'm excited but yet it could be completely devastating if it wasn't what he was expecting. Yeah. Yeah. And that's exactly what happened. He, he, um, you know, to, he went, um, the, his college roommate and some of the guys in the adjacent room, they were big uh, computer gamers and Nick was not into that. They liked to smoke pot. Nick was not into that. Not judgmental against them, but just wasn't into that. So he felt like an outsider the kids kind of made their own, you know, the guys on the, on the floor um, in, in that area made their own group and they'd come in, into Nick's room um, and they would um, play computer games um, to the wee hours of the morning. And Nick had eight o'clock business classes. He was enrolled in the business school there and he wasn't into that. So they bonded. They would come in and ask the roommate to go to dinner in the cafeteria to go to lunch. And Nick, one time he had tears in his eyes. He said to, to me, Mom, they act like I'm invisible. You think one of them would turn to me and just say, hey, Nick, you want to join us? So it, it was really... That had to been heartbreaking like for you. I mean, to hear these oh stories, so, I mean, as a, as a parent, to yeah. just imagine, you know, here's your child coming to you and just just devastated that they can't find somebody socially to accept them. 
it, 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 like I said, adults thought he was the nicest kid. Like they'd be like, you've got the nicest, nicest young man. Like they would, they would just think, uh, they'd see his heart, you know, they'd see what a tender soul he was. They'd see, um, that he was, you know, just full of love. But like I said, peers his own age, he was an easy target. Um, and so he was worried about where he was going to live his sophomore year, you know, like, you know, freshman kids by the middle of the year, they have it all worked out where they're going to be living the following year. Nick wanted to live um, off campus. And, um, so he was spending a lot of his time, um, in a residence on campus that we thought was part of the university. It was a separate outside residence owned by a gentleman with two um, boys. Um, one, I can't remember both. I know one for sure was gay. And I think this was an individual who thought maybe he can control that and get his son not to be gay. If you know what I mean? Yeah, so understood. he was running the residence. He, he was running the residence this way. Um, and so the kids that were hanging out there, it was really weird what was going on there. Uh, like I said, it was not part of the university, but it was right off campus. And the kids were told that they had to have a sponsor. All the kids that were hanging out there or living at this house, this is a private residence. And again, this was a place that Nick wanted to live for the following year. He was in the dorm freshman year, but this is where he was hanging out because he wasn't fitting in with the guys on the floor. He was hanging out in this group, eyeing it for sophomore year. And uh, then all these strange things were happening. He's finding out that they all had to have a sponsor um, that was an older student that if they were assigned each a sponsor and that if they had feelings for anybody, they had to be talked off the ledge, so to speak, you know, about those feelings oh by gosh. calling their sponsor before they acted on it. Right. Weird. Oh, my gosh. Um, and so Nick. Right. And so Nick would he'd call home. He'd say, this was happening. We're like, oh, my gosh, Nick, that's not right. That's not right. He came home at Christmas time. We're like, oh, my gosh, don't hang out there. That is not right at all. Um, and it, it's just, and it, was a, it was a religious house. And we're like, you're going to come home. You're not going to have faith. We were afraid he wasn't going to have faith anymore because he would equate that with the weirdness that was going on the judgment, there. judgment, yeah, and he was the like, judgment. Yeah. And and he and he was like, Mom, Dad, no, I know this is strange. Don't worry, I'm not hanging out there anymore. <laughs> so he was he was panicky about where he was going to live. He wanted to get in an apartment lease with a group of guys that he didn't know, and they strung him along, and that caused stress. And then the final straw was there was the final weekend. He called home and he said, Mom, Dad, I'm having the worst weekend of my life. There's a rumor that's going around. Um, they're saying um, they're spreading around that I'm gay. And again, he never mentioned anything like that to anybody at campus. Again, he thought he was asexual, but he was still struggling trying to figure it out. So I immediately flew to his side. I um, dropped everything, flew from Chicago to Minneapolis, stayed in a, a motel room on campus. And the plan was, there was only two weeks left of school. And the plan was, that um, Nick was going to, I was going to try to get him off the floor because, you know, the guys were laughing and they were spreading this rumor that he was going to stay in the hotel room with me for those two weeks. He could chill, study, finish up his classes and take his finals. We would fly home, then drive back and get his stuff. Um, and that was the plan. So that weekend, I think I got there on Saturday, early evening. Um, we talked. I got him to the point where he was laughing and smiling and, you know, we talked all about, you know, the rumor and just about everything. Nick and I were extremely, extremely close. And, um, um, Monday he, um, woke up, was going to go to class, but he didn't. He, he walked downtown, uh, Minneapolis. And for, um, for those of you who aren't familiar with Minneapolis, the Mississippi River runs through it and throughout the University of Minnesota campus. So there are a lot of bridges. And Nick walked to one of the bridges and jumped. And I was there by myself then, you know, and learned that, that Nick died that way. So, you know, it was just a 
absolutely devastating. That had to have been the hardest day of your life, like literally the hardest day of your life. It gets worse. The story even gets worse. When Nick jumped, the detective who found his backpack by the bridge told me that, um, you know, and and my husband, because we were on, by this time we were on a, a, a joint phone call. Um, and he said, you may not get the body back because he jumped right. There's one bridge that has this big waterfall by it. And they said, you may not get his body back because there was a body last year that, that jumped. I mean, there were many that have jumped there since, but one last year did not surface. So we didn't know if we would ever get his body back. And we didn't for five weeks. Um, and a, a point that I want to make for people is a small window of what a problem suicide is. When my son was in that area of the Mississippi River, there were within that five-week period, um, actually within two, two and a half weeks afterwards, there were actually four bodies right there in that same vicinity. Two kids from Wisconsin, they uh, made a suicide path. They were high schoolers, a boy and a girl. They drove out from Wisconsin to Minneapolis and jumped. And this was, um, you know, a couple weeks after Nick. And then a uh, 20-something-year-old special education teacher jumped. And so there were four people who were in that river and four families lost their loved ones in the most unimaginable way. And so that's just a window. I'm just in shock. I just, I cannot imagine that I know Jen doesn't deal well with really super heavy stuff, so I'm she she saw him over here, not not saying much. It's just I as parents we just imagine what you went through and just can't um, grasp it. And you know, thank you number one for your truth and for your vulnerability and for your courage to to share it because you know without these kind of discussions nothing changes. And so I just want to acknowledge um, how difficult it must be to recount that, relive that, to go back through that. But it also is flooring to me that that many kids in that period of time are doing that. It just it just is unimaginable to me that that that's what's happening. Well, and I felt, you know, we're all called in this, in this life to help others. Um, I think it's all about love and service. And, of course, I didn't want to be the, um, you know, who wants to be the voice for suicide and to unload the most private, intimate details of the worst, um, the worst events that happen in, 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 your lo- in, in a person's life. But I felt a responsibility to do this because I had learned so much and this was such an extraordinary um, story. I had to share this uh, and I felt strongly called. So after Nick died, the first thing I did, like um, right, you know, as we were doing his memorial mass again, without his, without a body, we didn't get it to week five and the memorial mass was at week four. Um, I knew right away we formed Nick's Network of Hope, which is our not-for-profit. It's a suicide prevention and grief support not-for-profit. Um, and I, um, I knew that, uh, I know I thought about people, young people like my son, Nick, and really people of all ages that are struggling just to stay here. Um, and that was just going through my mind. And, um, and then I was thinking about the families who are um, just working so hard with their loved ones, going to bed at night, wondering if they're still going to be there the next day. And I felt a responsibility, um, um, a calling, a strong calling to, to help those people. So the first thing I did was three years after, you know, we, we formed Nick's Network of Hope um, and the website is nicksnetworkofhope.org. And then three years afterwards, we didn't do much the first three years because I was healing and my, uh, my husband was healing. My daughter was healing. But year three, we did, um, uh, I, I did a comprehensive website because, uh, you know, and your, your website is incredible, the by things- the way, all the resources, all the acknowledgement, whether it's LGBTQ or whether it's, you know, suicide prevention, whether it's bullying. I mean, I, there's a, an incredible amount of resources on org. 
Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, um, I, uh, it's a 501c3 charity, so all donations are tax deductible. And the website, you could go on there, and you could, there are all kinds of links to national and local organizations. Um, and so we started doing public speaking, um, we, um, and, uh, you know, I do webinars and podcasts and, um, were you, were you at at the time starting to do like the brainstorming for the book? Because you, you wrote a book that's an incredible book before and after how to ask for help, recognize warning signs and navigate grief. So it's for people, you know, in a situation where they suspect that somebody may be having suicidal thoughts, but it's also for people that unfortunately have now are dealing with the grief of suicide. So were you at that time trying to brainstorm that or writing down your feelings, your notes, the, 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 the history yes. of everything that had happened? Yes. Around, um, you know, year three, three, I started writing, um, a little bit here and there. And, and the book title is saving ourselves from suicide okay. before and after. Saving ourselves um, and, from suicide. Uh, from suicide before and after. How to ask for help, recognize yes. warning signs, and navigate grief. Yeah, and um, so I was um, starting to write a little bit, but nothing really amounted to much uh, in the beginning because it was more, um, you know, just get this down so so I can preserve the memory of, of it. And then, um, you know, around year four or so, uh, we're seven years out now, so around year four or five, I really um just this this calling this gnawing it's almost like a gnawing i, I you can't it let it like, go it just it persists it persists it persists it yes and and i didn't want to do it sean and jen you know because i just didn't i just it was such a tough topic i didn't know if i could do it um but it wouldn't let me go so um i um wrote it then uh six months worth of writing and in the beginning, I didn't know if I could do it, uh, it, it the, because it was, it was reliving it. I had already worked through a lot of that part of the grief, and I was now writing it. And, you know, I, a writer is like a sculptor where you take the event and, you, you know, the first time you write it, you just get it down. And then you keep on working it and working it and working it so that you can... You, I felt that I needed to relay to people, to take them by the hand and have them experience what it was like um, and to feel the emotion. But I didn't want to, there are a lot of suicide books out there that are just like a catharsis, uh, a cathartic dump of emotion. And I didn't want to do that to people. What I wanted to tell his story, but do it in a way that brings the story back to the reader. and and give help weave it throughout his story so like nick couldn't see this but if you are going through this remember this this and this let's 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 do that because i don't want to run out of time and not be able to to do that because you talked about risk factors and warning signs i would like to try to help you save somebody's life somebody that might be in this kind of a situation so you know what are the what are the predominant risk factors what are the warning signs let's let's make people aware of what you didn't see at the time that you now know to look for okay so so like i said the 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 first 100 pages of the book is the story the last 200 pages is all this help so if people want more detail to the help i'm going to give now it, it gives all of this and, and much, much more in detail. And so the risk factors um, and warning signs, the, the things that I would say to help people are um, know them, um, become familiar with them. The risk factors are the things that give you the heads up to start looking for the warning signs. It's kind of like the, you know, uh, the tornado watch versus the tornado warning. Yes. It's the same sort of thing. And so you can Google um, for the risk factors, um, and the warning signs anywhere we have them on our website. It's in the book. Um, but you know, there's so many, I'll just give you a, a, a few. Of yeah. Give the, us the top three uh, to five. You know, like, okay. So, uh, for risk factors, it would be if you already have a mental health condition or disorder that you are uh, diagnosed with, if you have a history of trauma or abuse, um, if there's a, um, you know, you are, you feel isolated or you feel that you have a lack of social support, it doesn't have to be a real lack of support, but just that you feel it. Um, if you feel hopelessness, 
that's a real big risk factor. If you have, um, you know, an inability to access health care, a lot of times people take their lives because they don't want to be a burden, a financial burden on others, uh, or they can't get the health care they need. Um, so those are just a few of the risk factors. Now, you know, for yourself, to uh, how you can recognize warning signs in yourself or somebody else, you're looking for like mood swings, loss of interest, you know, like loss of interest in work, school, family, maybe hobbies. You're feeling intense loneliness. You just feel resigned and defeat. You, you've given up. You feel it. You feel tired and exhausted all the time. There's an inability to focus, to concentrate, to make decisions. Your grades, maybe if you're a student, are, have dropped or you're performing poorly at work. You're withdrawing from family and friends. Your eating habits have changed. They either you're eating more or less. Same thing with sleeping habits. You're sleeping more or less. You're feeling unbearable pain. And that pain, Sean and Jen, could be emotional or physical or, or both. Um, and, and then, of course, um, you know, you can be having thoughts of suicide, which is called suicide ideation. You might have it seen uh, or see it referred that way. And so if you are looking to help yourself, the things I can tell you is if your hope is lost, reach out to others and just rely on others to carry you if you feel like you have no strength to help yourself. You have to yell for help and then allow it. My son yelled at the very end, I'm depressed, uh, two times. But then when I asked him, how bad is it, Nick? I mean, you know, like go to the health clinic on campus if it's bad. Oh, no, 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 mom. It's not that bad. I'll be home in two weeks. So you have to yell for help and then allow it. And if you're having thoughts of suicide, you have to tell somebody specifically that, that yes, I'm having thoughts of suicide. If my son, who evidently, you know, I mean, he was having thoughts of suicide, if he would have said that to us, we would have, it would have been a game changer. We would have been on notice. We would have gotten him the care right away. We would have taken him home from school. You know, it didn't matter that there were two weeks left. We would have gotten him the, the help that he needed. Um, is there um, is there tr- is there um, truth, so, Linda? Is there truth to to the the thought that I've I've heard that it described that sometimes when people make that decision, they, they may make that decision. I'm going to do it maybe a week, maybe a week and a half, two weeks before like they've resolved. Okay, I'm going to do it, and then and then there seems to be this period of peace where they're outgoing, they're laughy, they're fun, it you know, etc. It's it's almost like a release, like the cognitive you know desire. Okay, I've made that decision. I'm gonna I'm gonna do it. It almost releases pressure from them and then like it's harder to see it's harder to detect and and I feel like you know sometimes when they get to that point like he probably he, he sounds like a, a very very he was a very intelligent person and so he probably knew if he had said something about it you guys would have marshaled all of your resources toward it but at that particular time maybe he he just was like I don't I don't want to live in this world anymore I, I just feel like this this world doesn't accept me somehow some way so it, yeah, I think it's, yeah. it's super challenging for it's almost like they, you got to get it early on in order for you to prevent it from escalating to where it, it, it got to, you know? Sean, that is such an excellent point. I mean, you are spot, spot on. Um, and that's why that is one of the warning signs, what you just described. You know, people might say, oh, you know, they went from depressed to happy. And, and so when you see that, sometimes it is just the natural progression of feeling better. Maybe you've gotten help. But it also can be that calm before the ultimate and, and final storm yeah. of suicide. And I did see that with Nick. When we were talking, he was laughing. And I remember saying something like, oh, you know, Nick, um, you know, so I, I gave him something like, you know, make, like moms do. You know, make sure you do this or do that. Oh, mom, don't worry. I'll, I'll never. I, I, um, I said something like, you know, don't do that. Oh, I won't do that again. You don't have to worry about that. Well, in hindsight, I think he was saying, hey, you don't have to worry. I'm not going to be around. Um, but yes, I think that there was there is a calmness because they become content with their decision to take their life. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and, um, and if, and if you're you not know, aware, you on the outside looking in going, oh, okay, they've turned a corner. Oh, it's not so bad. Oh, they're okay. You know, and that, that's what makes right. it so you know, challenging to know. And I, and I guess, it, it, you know, it's just like that, that fervent, you know, communication, like you got to know your kid, you got to know what's going on. If you can, if they're, if they're willing to let you in. 
another really important point that people should um, just really take in and, and remember is that it's okay to ask someone if they're having thoughts of suicide and if they have a plan to do so. You know, we all think that by doing so, we're planting the seed. I thought that. I never specifically, I mean, it wasn't even on the radar. Suicide wasn't on the radar for me, except for that time when he gave away the clothes. But I thought, you know, that was, that was probably his good nature because he seemed to be doing better that senior year. But um, I wish I would have asked Nick, hey, are you having thoughts of suicide in the plant? It, it, research has shown that that does not plant the seed or give them a person the idea to do so. So if you are really concerned about somebody, um, ask them straight out. Listen, ask open-ended questions, and don't try to fix. Let them know that, you know, it's okay for them. You're trying to build a communication back and forth so that that they will come to you if they're having a problem. Um, don't be a cheerleader when people need more help. Uh, for my son, I was like, "Woo, Nick, you know, two more weeks, you're almost home from college, you're, you know, you're almost done. And, you know, you can cheer somebody up if they're in a glum mood or if they're having a bad day. You can't cheer somebody past their pain um, when it's such, uh, at such a level like this. Uh, yeah. You have to know when to cheer them up and when to go and get professional help. Um, and then also believe the behavior more than the words. Now, what do I mean by that? I mean that there, a lot of times your loved one will tell you that they're feeling fine, that they're okay because even when they're not, um, because they don't want to worry you. They maybe it's, uh, you know, you have four kids and they're worried that, you know, they're taking up too much of your time when you have three other kids. Or maybe your loved one has put you through so much already, they don't want it to, to, you know, to put you through anything else. Or maybe your loved one actually does believe that they're doing better. And that, um, that when you ask them, hey, how are you feeling? They really do feel like they're fine. Because, you know, mental health issues, they, they go, it's like, you know, mood swings with up and down and up and down. And maybe every time you ask your loved one, how they're doing, they're on that up where they're feeling good. So that's why it's really important to teach your loved ones that if they're struggling, they need to actually come and tell you and to specifically tell you if they're having thoughts of suicide, even if it's in the past, because if they've been down that dark road, they have to tell you so that there's a safety net. You can put a safety net below them so that if they go to, if that comes to, um, to a head again, then you're prepared. They, they are not left alone that you can get them the treatment they need. Yes. Absolutely. So these are the things we have to explain to people. Um, now let me, you know, let me, uh, let me it, just, it, let me just acknowledge, um, you know, if you're, if you're listening right now, if you're, if you're looking for more resources, let me make sure you understand it's nicksnetworkofhope.org. That's the website. And then the book it, that Linda wrote is Saving Ourselves from Suicide Before and After, How to Ask for Help, Recognize Warning Signs, and Navigate Grief. And so, Linda, as we, uh, as we close out the show, I mean, I, I, I just, the way that I'm going to title this is I'm going to make sure that, that suicide is, is obviously part of the main description of it. And uh, I just want, if somebody's listening right now that is feeling that way, is, is having those feelings, what would you say to that person right now based on your experience, what you know, what you've learned, you know, what, what, what can we say to somebody that might be contemplating something like that? Well, I would say that, you know, suicide is so final. There are no do-overs that there is hope in the world. There is hope that situations get better. I, I think if they sat down and talked with people, they would understand that a lot of people go through dark times or through difficult times um, and that they would say that with a little bit of time, um, it does get better. And if, if you are having thoughts of suicide, try to understand that sometimes these mental health problems, they can almost trick, your mind can trick you in believing 
that they, you don't have a lot of people around you or a lot of support. You have more people than you know or realize who care. I mean, here I am, Sean and Jen, if we didn't care about you, we wouldn't be doing this. We wouldn't be taking our time to, to, to do a podcast like this. There's always hope. So and please I think reach I'd, out. There yeah. are people who care all around you. And I would, I would add to that. Thank you for that. And, and I would add to that. And that's part of the reason why, why we did this is, is I feel like there are times in everybody's life where they feel like the problems that they're facing are insurmountable. It's, it's the equivalent of a Mount Everest and they've never, you know, hiked a mile in their life. And so at, at, periods like that, you can feel very, very hopeless. You can feel like there's no way out. And the reason that we do this podcast about hope is to share with you incredible stories of people going through some really, really horrible occurrences and coming out of that on the other side, often stronger, tested, thriving. You know, some of the darkest points in our life lead to some of the brightest opportunities that we've ever experienced in our life. And so that to me is that hope, the hope that tomorrow is better than today, that the future can be better than where we are. And often if you give it enough time, if you just wait, if you give it some more time, you realize that, you get that perspective, you can experience that. And the more of those wins that you get, the more that the mountain comes after the valley, the more you go, okay, I can handle what comes next. And so I just wish young people understood that what happens in high school, what happens in college, like in the big scheme of things, really doesn't matter. It's not real life. It's not their real life in the future. It's not their real friend groups that they're going to have. You know, it can, and, and, and it's stuff that, you know, now with Jen and I, we've, we've been married 26 years together for 31 we were high school sweethearts we look back at our high school days and go man how little did that really matter to who we became and what our life's like now you know and sexual orientation and gender identity struggles they get better over time yes if you go on our website nextnetworkofhope.org we we actually have some you know like wanda sykes and some other celebrities and comedians they have videos there on how it did get better for them so um you know that is something that if nick um if he was having a difficult and clearly he was having a difficult time with that over time it would have gotten better um as he grew up and people yeah i just you know go around people who were you know, more understanding. Yeah. And, I just imagine uh, him know, amongst a group of, I, I, I just imagine him amongst a group of high functioning Asperger's mm-hmm. people himself, you know, people that were more similar to him that would relate to him that understood how he felt like there's so many groups and communities and support and connections and things like that. I just, uh, it's just heartbreaking that we didn't have an opportunity to, to allow him to be plugged into something like that, you know? And, and the people who are suffering from grief, maybe, you know, from losing somebody to suicide, please know, um, seven years ago, I was crying my eyes out in my family room, wondering how I was going to get on with life. Please know that, you know, here I am to a point where I can help others. So I am living example that that grief process, although arduous and so difficult, I I wanted to share with people and I do so in the book by sharing exactly what that grief process was like and what it took to get back into society, that there's hope for, for finding joy and happiness in life again, although it is so difficult and, uh, and, and, and it's the hardest part of life, losing somebody in that way. Uh, life is still really good. And as long as you wake up and are breathing, you can fulfill your mission in life and find joy. Uh, it's a choice. I choose joy every day when I wake up. Well said, Linda. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for your truth, your vulnerability, your courage to come on and share. And uh, I, I really applaud what you're doing. You're making a difference and you're leading by example. And so I just, I just want to say from us to you, Thank you so much for being an awesome hope dealer on our show. Well, thank you, Sean and Jen, for what you do, for bringing hope to people. It's so important, especially uh, in these times. So thank you for all of the time and the commitment that you you make each and every day that you do this. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you so much. 
All right, Jen, I know that was probably very, very difficult for you, Mm -hmm. but what did you think about that interview? Well, it's a topic that no parent wants to have to deal with, but I think we all need to be aware of any kind of signs, you know, if you're a parent or even if you're not a parent, if you're just a friend, just to know those danger warning signs. Yeah, I think that's one of the things about suicide is it's it's indiscriminate. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you can you can be 80 years old and yeah. be suicidal. You can yeah. be eight years old right. potentially and be suicidal. Um, you know, it's just it's just heartbreaking. I just read this morning about a 13 year old girl that committed suicide because her abuser or attacker was just, you know, given bail or released from jail. I mean, it's oh, the geez. front line headline. And I'm like, it's just heartbreaking. It's yeah. just heartbreaking to hear somebody get into a situation where they're so hopeless yeah. that they decide that taking their life is the only way to escape that you know that's one of the main reasons why i wanted to do the show is that that to be a lamp a light of hope Mm -hmm, you know mm -hmm. like don't ever take it that far don't ever think your circumstance is so insurmountable that you can't overcome it often you know the the valley's the deepest right before the beginning of the mountain right and so like the the, it's darkest before dawn you know and i wanted people to know that things can change you know, life can change as you know, like we're just talking about, you know, it's like the stuff that happened in high school doesn't Mm -hmm. even matter. Like it just, none of those, you know, no offense, but those people don't often matter to the rest of your life. Right. I mean, you can make some great friends in high school, but sometimes you, you you don't. And next thing you know, you haven't talked to people in 30 years and you still live your life. Right. So, um, just heartbreaking, but I, I, I love that Linda has taken that experience in Nick's honor Mm -hmm. and, made a difference, right. resolved to make a difference, to, to change the situation. Right. And it was just so heartwarming for me to hear that they've, they know for sure they've already saved a life. Yeah. You know, I know it's, that's, that's amazing. Yeah. So again, if you want to get connected with, uh, with Linda, it's Nick's network of org, And she wrote a book. I highly encourage anybody that's dealing with, um, you know, the effects of, of somebody having committed suicide, if you want to get this book, I mean, I think Linda's done a, an excellent job of explaining the situation, coming alongside. It's not mm-hmm. just it's not just facts and figures. It's it's, it's story told and then recognizing yeah. certain elements of it. But the book's called Saving Ourselves from Suicide Before and After, How to Ask for Help, Recognize Warning Signs, and Navigate Grief. Yeah. So pick that up anywhere you search for books. Specifically, you can pick it up on our website. So yeah. All right, so how do people um, connect with us, Jen, on Facebook and Instagram? Well, we're at Hope Radio Podcast on both those social medias. And wherever you listen to a podcast, if you're listening to us right now, subscribe. Subscribe. We do new shows every Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Wednesday. 9 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. So Mm -hmm. we deal out hope Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. We're going to get you through hump day because by the time Thursday rolls around, you're already hope-filled because it's almost the weekend. That's right. All right, so I think we should do another show. Yeah, I think- Let's do one more. I think I've got an interview. You know what, Jen? I do. I have another interview scheduled for tomorrow. Okay, I'm going to go hug my babies now. Okay. I'll see you tomorrow. I'm going to do the same. Okay, bye.